This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I wanted to let you know that for the first time, there is also a video version of the podcast on YouTube. My hope is for more episodes to be available on video going forward. It seemed like the time to take this video step. The podcast will continue to be available on audio format, as you've been listening, of course, but a lot of people use YouTube who simply don't and won't use audio-only formats. Please visit and subscribe at youtube.com slash at cultural debris. There is a link in show notes. Over time, I do hope to release some YouTube-only videos there, Uh, of sort of extra content. So we'll see how that develops. But if you prefer video, hop over there and subscribe. And if you're a YouTube user in general, keep an eye on it. You never know what might pop up. This past week, America lost one of its great novelists of the past half century, and probably one of our greatest novelists of all time, Cormac McCarthy. He was a giant, writing both Appalachian novels and then later novels set in the American Southwest. If you haven't read McCarthy, you should do so, but be prepared for some grittiness. My guest is Dale Alquist, president of the Society of G.K. Chesterton. Dale and his wife, Laura, traveled with us last fall to Genoa on a cultural debris excursion. We discussed that trip during our interview this episode, but we have some openings for our excursions this October and would love for you to go. This group is small by design, only six guests each week, so spots are limited, and some are already filled. We will travel to Siena and Florence in Tuscany the first week and back to Genoa the second week. You can do both weeks or only one please reach out to culturaldebrispodcast at gmail.com. You should definitely go. There will be beautiful sights, tremendous food, and scintillating conversation. Also, please consider becoming a patron of Cultural Debris at patreon.com slash culturaldebris. You can support the podcast for as little as $2 a month. My poem is from Gilbert Keith Chesterton. Elegy in a Country Churchyard. The men that worked for England, they have their graves at home, and bees and birds of England about the cross can roam. But they that fought for England, following a falling star, alas, alas for England, they have their graves afar. And they that rule in England, in stately conclave met, Alas, alas, for England, they have no graves as yet. As I said, my guest is Dale Alquist, who has made the study and promotion of the works and ideas of G.K. Chesterton his life's work. We preview the upcoming Chesterton Society Conference, the growth of the Chesterton School Network, as well as the status of the campaign to have G.K. Chesterton officially declared a saint. Plus, Dale's thoughts on traveling to Genoa on a cultural debris excursion. 
Please join me as I speak with Dale Alquist. Dale Alquist, welcome to Cultural Debris. And thank you, Alan. A very great opportunity to be with you. Thank you. Well, you are uh, are usually traveling about, globe trotting and nation trotting, I guess. So it's nice to to catch you not somewhere else. Uh, where have you been lately? Well, I had a a series of trips around the country to new Chesterton academies that were uh, having their uh, major gala events, and so I I did uh, five, six cities in four weeks. I was in. Portland, Oregon, Salt Lake City, Utah, Omaha, Nebraska, Wichita Falls, Texas, and obviously two other places, because I think I only listed four. <laughs> well, I'm sure they remember you fondly. Orlando. Um, Orlando, Florida was okay, one of them. Okay, there you go. And I've heard a, of it. There's another one. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's fine. I'm not grading you on it, but uh, well, welcome back home, I guess. Maybe, uh, maybe you'll... Be there for a little while before you have to run off again. Milwaukee in just a couple days. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Well, you've got uh, you've got a conference to get ready for. I suppose uh, things are are heating up along those lines. Uh, tell me about your uh, your Chesterton conference this summer. Well, uh, one of the unusual things about the conference is that I won't have to leave home to uh, to attend it this year. Uh, it used to be in the Twin Cities up until two thousand eight. So. Just, just think, we haven't been held a conference here in, in the Twin Cities of Minnesota since 2008. So we were, we got a little homecoming here, and it's a little easier to get ready, ready for a conference when it's uh, local. But uh, one of the great highlights, of course, of this year's conference is that you will be a speaker, Alan. <laughs> ah, yes. Well, I, I better get, I better get get something written for that. Yes, you should. And, and, I, and I am very excited about you speaking there because we've never had a talk on Russell Kirk before, and uh, it's it seems strange, but at least not in during my tenure. And I've been attending Chester conferences since nineteen ninety, and there hasn't been a Russell Kirk talk there. So, I mean, he was still alive when. Uh, <laughs> yeah, our, that's yeah. right. You could you could have had him yourself. Yeah, we but. could have had him. Yourself. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if he spoke at, at conferences previous to the ones that I started to attend. But uh, great Chestertonian, great American thinker, and uh, we're really curious and looking forward to see how you're going to put the two great men together. Especially yeah, knowing that you, how much, you and me both. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we we know that that Russell Kirk was just a great admirer of of Chesterton. In fact, he, he served on the Chesterton Society uh, board when, when the Chesterton Review was, was being printed by the, the, the first Chesterton Society. So, uh, yeah, so that's going to be good. But after that uh, dazzling highlight, we have uh, lesser speakers coming in like uh, Bishop Robert Barron. Oh, I've heard of him. Yes, yes. He's one of our speakers. And uh, then we have uh, the... Joseph Pierce and the rest of the troubadours, uh, the motley crew of consisting of Chris, Christopher Check uh, of Catholic Answers and Dr. William Fahey, the president of 
St. Thomas More College of the Liberal Arts, and Dan Kerr, who's the uh, the founder and president of St. Martin's Academy, an amazing school in, in Kansas. But both Dan Kerr and Joseph Pierce will be giving individual talks, uh, and Joseph has just come out with a new uh, history of, uh, of England, and he'll be giving a talk on the Dark Ages to the Middle Ages. I should mention that the, uh, the theme of the conference this year is uh, St. Francis of Assisi, or we, we call the Jugglers of God, because um, it's 100 years since Chesterton's book on St. Francis uh, was published. So we'll be focusing a little bit more on, on Francis, although the talks will cover a wide variety of, of subjects. Uh, we also have well, uh, you know, William. I was going to say William Fahey, who who you mentioned in the Troubadours. I first met in Macosta, Michigan, long, long ago. Uh, a a when when he and I were both much younger, and uh, he was uh, he was serving as an assistant himself for Russell Kirk back then. Oh, fantastic! Well. At least you'll have one person in your audience, and that's great. That's right. Well, maybe. I don't know. I, he may, he's like, I know that guy. I'm not going to go hear him. <laughs> now, uh, and William Fahey is one of the wittiest and most erudite men uh, I've, I've known. He's, just, he's, he's read just about everything, and, uh, and he, he can condense it and relate it so well with just his wonderful, gracious sense of wit, too. Uh, but I, one of the talks I'm really looking forward to is uh, – Professor uh, Tom Martin, who um, just recently retired from the University of Nebraska at Kearney, where he ran the philosophy department there, he's been a pillar of the Chester Society for many years, marvelous speaker, marvelous thinker, and an imposing fellow, six foot six with a big white snowy beard. And he will uh, He will fill the room with his voice and He's just outside. He's going to be talking about Chesterton and Solzhenitsyn, mm. uh, which is something I don't think we've ever done before either. I certainly don't recall it. And uh, then we, we have some, uh, well, we have the Chesterton himself uh, in the form of John Walker, a professor of arts from uh, Steubenville at the Franciscan University there who <laughs> looks just like Chesterton and has the same massiveness of Chester. It's, it's a great experience because it, it is like being in the room with the man himself. Uh, he's got the, the great, the great joy and, and, uh, gives us the, the sense of the absent mindedness and the sense of wonder that comes from Chesterton. And he'll be, he'll be doing some passages and some reflections on the St. Francis book. And it's, I guess a couple other highlights, uh, Alan, he, uh, we'll have some small breakout groups on, different subjects, including localism and Chesterton's ideas on Catholic social teaching uh, and, you know, the home, the small business, the field, the uh, educate education, of course, taking con control of our children's education, which is really one of the great uh, works of the Chesterton Society these days as we run the, the Chesterton Schools Network and the, the many uh, classical Catholic schools that are, are the Chesterton academies around the country. So uh, those are the highlights. It's going to be just a terrific, terrific uh, gathering of folks. Uh, every time there is a, a conference, as you know, having been to only one, but the one you were at last year, we have uh, 
not only the great talks, but there's a time of just interaction with the other attendees that is priceless and, and unmatched. Uh, we have a, a very vibrant afterglow at the end of every evening. That Indeed. <laughs> lasts late into the night. <laughs> Right, I think it lasts. I think they outlasted me, but um, but I, for as long as I could stay with the young folks, um, I did enjoy them. It was the last year, of course, as you mentioned, was my my first conference, and it was it was a lot of fun. I, I like, and I I not only enjoyed the speakers, but the the uh, the people and events surrounding the the formal talks, getting to interact with people. Uh, the the masses that were offered uh, and and the afterglow was uh, was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's the total package, and we we really encourage people to come. Whether whether you know a lot about Chesterton or know virtually nothing at all, you will be rewarded and uh, it definitely edified, but also just spiritually uplifted. Yeah, I I don't think I don't think people need uh, need to think that they need to need to be an expert on Chesterton in order to, in order to attend. I, I think they would get quite a lot out of it. Yeah. No matter what their interest is, because, uh, they'll, they'll find common sense and also they'll find profound, uh, truths and it's, you're, you're connecting with a, a real wide variety of folks there. And that's, what's, that's what's so, I think, you know, sparkling about the whole thing. Well, and you know, obviously, somebody like Bishop Barron is is a a high profile sort of fellow. Uh, you know, to to me, it was it was impressive that he has the interest in Chesterton that he would that he would want to come to the conference. Yeah, I've uh, I've always been aware of his great interest in Chesterton, and uh, I was so pleased that uh, he immediately said yes when we invited him. Fortunately, um, he's closer to us than he used to be. He just he recently was uh, relocated to be the, the Bishop of Rochester, Winona, which is the diocese immediately to the south of uh, St. Paul in Minneapolis. So it's just a trip up the road for him. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I watched his uh, the, the documentary that he did on Chesterton uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, it, it's very moving. Though he, no, those are... Uh, those are brilliant uh, episodes. I would encourage anybody to watch that. Uh, I think it's about an hour or so. Um, yeah, yeah. They're they're called the the pivotal the pivotal players series. Yes, that, that's right. That's and right. There's a, an hour on Chesterton as well as other great Catholic uh, figures. Yeah, but I I really did enjoy the the one on Chesterton. Of course, he spends time uh, in in England where Chesterton was and goes to his home and so forth. And so it's. Uh, it was it's it's if somebody wants a uh, a, a very well done introduction to Chesterton, I think that's a that's a good place to go. Uh, very high production levels and so forth, and thoughtful. So the 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 Chesterton conferences. I mean, they've they've gotten to the to the point where they're attracting heavy hitters like like Bishop Barron. Uh, since you have been attending and also then putting together Chesterton conferences. How have you seen the conferences grow and interest in Chesterton grow? Well, I uh, attended my first 
Midwest Chesterton Conference in 1990, as I said, and there were, well, there were 25 people sitting around on folding chairs, uh, and uh, I, I was... I was the only non-Catholic in the room at that point, and I was also the only one there who was under the age of 55. Uh, so, <laughs> and I was at that point well under that age, and uh, so it was a it was the old guard, but they were a group of wonderful, wonderful people who, uh, you know, they turned in unit. I walked in a little late, and their heads turned in unison and watched me come in. And I could tell that they they had their prey. They they knew that they had to <laughs> seize me and take me over, which is what they did exactly. Some of the most lovely, wonderful folks. I don't think hardly any of them are still alive anymore. But uh, they not only, I would say, es escorted me to to the Catholic Church, but they provide such a an amazing example of joyful, Catholic, profound, um, active folks who just epitomize G.K. Chesterton. Um, Chesterton is the complete thinker, I call him, but he, his ideas are as practical as they are, you know, theoretical, and they just lived it out. And uh, so they were a great inspiration. I, I loved attending those conferences. They started growing each year. They got a little bigger. I started pushing them. And... Uh, they were getting pretty old by the end of the 90s, and I I started the American Chesterton Society in 96, and in 97 brought the, the conference from Milwaukee then to the Twin Cities, and, and we had it there, as I said, for the next uh, 11 years. And each year it got bigger and bigger, but was still a free conference back then, Um if not only that, not only was the conference free, we gave away free beer. <laughs> I think you have to go to the afterglow for any sort of freebies like that now, I think. Right, but. right. Yeah, you don't get the free beer until the afterglow now. But That's right. But um, And so, and, and even though even though it was free and we gave away free beer, we still lost money. <laughs> <laughs> so... So what what possessed you in long ago in 1990? Uh, so, uh, it's long ago, but but I still remember 1990. Uh, what what possessed you to go to that meeting? Why why uh, you a non Catholic, a young a young man, uh, going into uh, with a group of of not young men to talk about G.K. Chesterton? Yeah, great question. I started reading Chesterton about a decade before that. And uh, ended up doing a master's degree uh, on Chesterton, on Chesterton and Kierkegaard and the concept of paradox. And uh, at that point, I, I thought I was probably the only person in the world interested in Chesterton. I, I had not met anyone else at that point. And, uh, and then I discovered uh, this group that had a, once a year met in Milwaukee. And... Uh, it was a real thrill for me to 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 meet them because I, I realized there's other people like me out there, <laughs> even though they were all much older and all Catholic. But I, I uh, it was really fun to find these like-minded folks who had the same enthusiasm for G.K. Chesterton that I had. That was that was just a great thrill because I I really had been the Lone Ranger. I felt until then, 
and uh, and even then, my my uh, I had an evangelistic pizzazz. I wanted other people to read Chester, and I was always pushing him on other people. Uh, but the, but my involvement with just that small ad hoc group of people became a much more organized force. And uh, you know, we started the Chester Society. I got the show on EWTN. The uh, after my conversion, I was uh, invited to do a, a television series on Chester, and that just led to uh, a huge exposure uh, to this thinker. And and the revival at that point was was really kicking off. And and and, and so that just to answer your question about the growth of the conference, we it's been in a different city every year since uh, since two thousand nine, and it we we get more people always locally attending, but then there's there's the, the faithfuls who come from where, you know, whatever part of the country, they'll always a- attend the camp. So our overall numbers have grown tremendously, but the interest in Chesterton keeps growing. And the, the variety uh, of uh, of the clientele, because uh, he just he just appeals all across the spectrum. Well, you've, you've started... Uh... Or I guess it has been expanding. I I don't suppose it was started particularly recently, but you just mentioned that you were traveling around to the new Chesterton academies. Uh, how did the academy start? And I, obviously, the academies themselves are are a way to spread knowledge about Chesterton, but also live out Chestertonian ideals. How, uh, when did when did the school start, and how did they explode like they have? Sure. Well, the first school started in 2008, again, here in the Twin Cities. Uh, another gentleman and myself uh, co-founded the first one. And it was, uh, the idea was to have a classical Catholic high school that was affordable. Those are basically the three things we wanted. You couldn't find all three of those together in any of the other options that were out there. You could maybe find two, but maybe just one or maybe none. <laughs> and so that was our formula. We're gonna we're just gonna be Catholic, classical, and affordable. And uh, I I told the other gentleman who was the co-founder. I said, and if we if we use Chesterton as our patron and as our our model thinker, and we call it Chesterton Academy, I could create a national base for it right away. Give it a national profile right away. Of course, he was very supportive of that idea. And so we did get kind of made a national splash, even though we were just a very tiny school starting out, but because of the, the, the interest in Chester and, and the work of the Chester and society uh, that, that helped the school tremendously in its early years. And then at a, uh, at a certain point, people started coming to us saying, well, we'd like to do the same thing that you're doing. And, uh, we were saying, well, we haven't quite figured out what it is we're doing yet, but uh, <laughs> at, at that point, we had to start packaging it up and uh, and making uh, making it uh, available to, to other folks who wanted to, to start the same thing. So we, we created the Chesterton Schools Network, and at that, at, a, at that point, we put the two interests together, and so we combined... Uh, the Chesterton Society with the work of the Chesterton Schools Network and one umbrella organization for two of them. And, you know, there's one still has its evangelistic uh, aspect to it, you know, just getting people to 
to to know about Chester, learn more, and 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 he's still the the great uh, convert maker. But then the the education branch, but they really go together because education is a form of evangelization. Oh sure, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. How how many do you have? Have you did you say that? Well, how I many? didn't, and this is where your mind starts to get blown. So we we started the first school in two thousand eight. The second school didn't really get established till 2014. And then there were maybe four schools that started w- within a short period of time around 2014. Next year, there will be 60 schools oh, around the wow. country. Yeah. It's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. It is just amazing. Well, it's, it it's it started slow but uh but ex- but has exploded. That's that's really it, incredible. Yeah, it's been an explosion. That's what it's been, and I think we can we can thank the uh, the downfall of the public school systems, the exposure that came from the COVID debacle. Uh, people started watching what their kids weren't learning uh, right in their living room, and uh, people were starting to look for other options at that point. Well, how many how many have you added in the past three or four years? Then, yeah. With, well, uh, oh, yeah. It's you know ten opened this year. Uh, wow. 10 the last year. So, I mean, most of them have been just in the last few years. We'll have 14 new schools adding next year. Wow. Yeah. So it's, so it's really since COVID happened, it's, it's really just, that's been the, that's been the explosion. Yeah. We, we were opening schools while other people were closing schools. Right. (laughs) Well, yeah, well put, you know, I, I, I do think, um, as as awful as covid was and the things surrounding surrounding it, uh, it it's interesting to see the good things that have come out of it uh, you know god god is using a horrible situation to bring about a lot of of really positive developments i think amen In- including conversions which is really interesting yeah. you know People who watched their screens, which is what most people were doing during COVID, right, um, didn't only watch bad stuff. <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> so there were, there were well, I mean, my uh, myself and my my family were all converted during that period. Is that uh, right? There you yeah, go. my uh, my wife and uh, and two of my daughters were confirmed in the fall of or late summer and fall of 2020. And then I was, I was confirmed in uh, January of 21. All, all as a result. Well, I mean, there were things building, but it was that time period that kind of uh, provided the inflection point for all that to happen. Isn't that something? Well, that's thank the Lord. That's really something. God bless you. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's something that as much and you'll, you'll, be hard pressed to find somebody who really hated the whole lockdown thing more than me. But at the same time, I do recognize and it, it, it keeps um, registering with me when I see these things, these positive things that, that have come out of that uh, kind of debacle and disaster that, that was COVID. But um, you know, sometimes, sometimes, uh, we we need bad things so that good may come, I suppose. Well, that's certainly how the Lord seems to work a lot of times. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, it it's it's incredible to see that explosion, and you no, know, uh, obviously, exponential growth seems 
seems ahead for you. So you'll, uh, it, th- that's, that's a long way from walking into that meeting in 1990, I think. Yeah. And I feel like that I walked into that meeting just a few days ago. So it, it seems like it's gone pretty quick. You say a slow start, yeah. but I don't remember anything except. <laughs> <laughs> right. Ab- ab- yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, you know, that going from that kind of meeting with, but within a generation, yeah. um, you have all of these Chestertonian outposts, not simply uh, for people, you know, m- mine and your age who remember 1990. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that doesn't seem like it was that long ago. Right, right. Uh, but you have the next generation and the next generation coming through the door, learning who G.K. Chesterton was. Yes. And yes. they know who G.K. Chesterton is. And so you're, you're talking about planting seeds that, that you know will last a century, at least into the next century, yeah. which, is, which yeah. is pretty incredible to think about. Uh, and they'll be doing the, uh, the 200th anniversary Chesterton conferences. That's then, right. So. That's right. <laughs> But uh, but that's that that is an amazing thing. So well, I I I wish you uh, wish you continued success with uh, with all of that. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. I'm going to selfishly now ask you about um, a trip that you made last fall to Genoa, Italy, and uh, you and I uh, happened to be there at the same time, as it turned out. What uh, what led you to to an interest in Genoa? Well, I could tell you why I was first interested in Genoa before I even found out about this trip. Uh, right. Well, yeah, yeah I want to go yeah, back to that. Yeah, I had. Uh, it, it actually goes back to to my conversion. Uh, one of the one of the hard things for a Protestant to grasp is the concept of purgatory, and uh, I I. I read uh, Dante's uh, Divine Comedy, which is an excellent way to, to start to learn about purgatory for someone who's a, a total outsider because it's so artistic in, in terms of the book itself. And uh, the commentary I read was, because you can't really read Dante without reading a good commentary, <laughs> uh, was by Dorothy L. Sayers, who uh, was Anglican, and yet she believed in purgatory. And she said, and she had translated this particular uh, version, and she said that translating, uh, you know, the Purgatorio was was more fun even than, than translating the uh, the Inferno. And and so I started gaining appreciation for Purgatory. But then uh, shortly after my conversion, uh, it was recommended to me that I read Catherine of Genoa and her writings on Purgatory. And by far, that was the best thing that anyone could ever uh, read on on purgatory. Is is Catherine of Genoa's uh, writings on purgatory, and it goes totally against uh, most people's impression of purgatory. In fact, Dante goes against most people's impression of purgatory. It's it's always associated with uh, you know the suffering and the pain, whereas the the souls in purgatory in Dante are, well, they're suffering, but they're they're 
looking forward to what lies at the end of purgatory, which is paradise. They know right. they know what's going to happen. They're saved, and they're just getting ready to meet meet God, which is the most marvelous sense of uh, anticipation. And it, it's why we should have that attitude now, as uh, as we as we live here with the church militant that. That we are going to see God, and and yeah, we have to suffer a bit before we get there, um, and uh, and and cleanse ourselves, prepare our souls to meet God. That's the impression you get from from Dante. But with uh, with Catherine Genoa, it's it's truly the fiery love of God. It's about experiencing the love of God, and uh, you, you you don't you're not thinking about getting ahead of someone else in line <laughs> you know, you're not, all, all these funny images uh, that are almost cartoonish of purgatory just just go away uh, and uh, and so when I read that then I started learning just more about her life and she was just an incredible saint and I said boy that you know she's just had a permanent place in my in my brain I even wrote a play about about Catherine of Genoa that we that we performed at, at Chester and Academy, it's called the Fiery Love of God. It was the play went really well. We just put it on a really good production, and so there's that. Okay, and then my son Adrian, who has become a very good friend of your colleague Tom Ruby, who between the two of you have created the cultural debris uh, phenomenon at <laughs> the, the tours. Um, Adrian calls me up one evening and said, "I'm going to Genoa." And I said, oh, I said, I'd love to go to Genoa. He goes, well, you can. <laughs> you too you can go to Genoa. Yeah, you should. And he was telling me that about, about Tom Ruby's uh, cultural debris tour. And, and I said, that sounds great. And, uh, you know, my wife's sitting next to me. And my wife was born in Italy. And, uh. And yeah, just, she was handy to have around. Oh, well, yeah. Well, yeah. And she's, <laughs> she is a very good traveling companion in, in Italy. Yeah, it really, really helps to have her there. But she, I said, have you ever been to Genoa? She goes, no. I said, neither have I. And I said, you know, if we don't go now, we're never going to go. And she goes, yeah, that's right. I said, okay, let's go. Okay. And, and, <laughs> And this is this meant she had to get a week off teaching, and and uh, we had to make we had to make a lot of arrangements, but we didn't even hesitate. We made the decision in less than a minute, and that's why we came to Genoa right there. That's why we came. <laughs> well, we were glad you did. Uh, so, what? Uh, t- tell me what what your impressions of Genoa was. Of course, we we visited the church. I know that was one of your uh, one of the the particular things you wanted to do was visit. St. Catherine's oh, uh, yeah. Church, yeah, and, and which turned into a little bit of an adventure for us while we yeah. were there. But <laughs> well, because you're not only visiting her church, you're visiting her. She's right there right. in, in yeah. a glass, a glass coffin, uh, incorrupt. She's she's aged a little bit. People do after five hundred years. Yeah, it happens. But she's all there, and uh, it's just incredible. You get to be, meet the, fa- the the saint face to face. Yeah, certainly that was one of the great highlights for me. But uh, the, the it was such a great way to visit um, a place in Italy by spending an extended amount of time in one place and learning about that place, the the history, the present culture, 
and of course just the the beautiful uh art and architecture which uh you just have to absorb on all levels uh so going to the going to the churches learning the history um and then the fellowship we had uh both uh, around the table and as we traveled to these places together the it's a it's a less explored part of italy and so it was less touristy uh and uh but it's just it's got such a rich tradition and uh, and fabulous eye popping scenery as all of Italy unfairly does. Mm-hmm. Uh, to us. That's uh, right. Yeah, they right. they uh, they hoard so much of it to themselves. Yeah. That and all the good food. Yeah, the good food. So we we took advantage of all those things, and it was, you know, it wasn't too overdone. Most you know, a, a tour can all, always has the weakness of just packing so much in that you're just so exhausted and you you can't enjoy things. Whereas by being there a week, we just had a couple activities each day that you you, you guys designed so well, uh, and uh, that made it a very a combination of manageable and truly restful and restorative. So we we were not exhausted when it was all over. We were actually restored. Yeah, it it is a wonderful a wonderful place and and incredible to see and and visiting that church was you know it was it was moving for me I first time I had been in there as well well Tom and I had scouted it out uh, and located it but um, but to go in there and and have the 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 saint right there i mean so and and so often of course you know you'll have you'll have uh, a sarcophagus or something where the the body is in here but there there's there she is she's yeah. she's elevated and in this in this glass uh, sarcophagus uh kind of overseeing everything yeah and, it, and of course it was sort of dark in the church and i think you were on a reconnaissance uh, mission to find <laughs> right. a way to light the church and you yes, did we, you, yeah you so the when we got on. there when we got there there was literally no one there i mean the right. church was open but there was no one in the church that we could find. We, we, and I particularly searched all over to try to find someone because the lights weren't on. Um, it wasn't a time for a mass or anything. They just had the church open. So uh, they, they had on these little side chapels, uh, light switches or, or boxes that you could you know, flip the, 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 uh, fuse switch on but nothing was coming on for hers so we finally found behind the door the the full uh the full electrical box for the whole for the whole church and you had to flip the right switch on it in order to power the switches where she was so it was sort of a multi multi-part when we go back we'll know how to do that but uh but but uh but I, I i thought this is the only time probably in my life that i will have the opportunity to flip the switch to turn on the light for a saint i mean when <laughs> when's that going to happen you know when yeah. am i ever going to do that again um but it was an interesting setup because they had she's elevated but they had a stairway uh that went up to a little seating area behind her where where you all uh, were able to go and pray and and uh, spend some time, 
and uh, I, I went up there as well. But it was it was interesting how they had that uh, had that whole setup uh, designed. Truly, truly. Well, I, and I can also say one of the great uh, serendipitous moments of the of the trip, uh, a surprise, something that you had not planned, uh, something that we discovered when we got there at the uh, behest of of the of the lovely ladies who who hosted the the properties where we where we stayed was the the, the cemetery. Uh, oh, yeah. absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. That was such a discovery and yeah. uh they call it the an outdoor museum but it's uh, mm-hmm. just one of the greatest examples of 19th century sculpture. Yeah, so mo- the Earth. monumental cemetery of uh yeah. Stagliano, I believe. I believe it's called. It's a beauty of contemplation. And uh, and it's it's hard to it is hard to describe to people how many statues there are. Uh, I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds. Uh, maybe I don't know. Uh, maybe thousands. I'm not maybe. sure. But it's but it it's they just keep going and uh, all of these. Um, I guess the the wealthy of of genoa would commission these full life-size sometimes larger than life-size statues that were that were carved just for just for this cemetery and there are there are angels and there are um people there are people on boats and there are uh saints and uh it's it's really an amazing, an amazing place. And, uh, one of the, I mean, has to be one of the, the most, uh, extensive cemeteries of its kind in the world. I can't imagine that there are yeah. many like that. There there are a few like it from the same time period, but I, I, I think that one <clears throat> really takes the cake. I guess the one in, in Milan, which is not too far away is, is on the same level of, of, elaborate sculpture going on and on forever but this one is a special spot there's no question yeah i think they perhaps uh, perhaps they and milan were trying to trying to outdo each other uh, because it general of course is is a relatively short train ride or bus ride from milan not very far we in fact uh, tom and i flew into milan when we when we came i think you all did too well it's so unlike the uh italians to be competitive do you really think that <laughs> So, yeah, uh, you know, Mark Twain wrote about um, the the few, the uh, the cemetery in Milan uh, in his uh, Innocence Abroad book, uh, and it was fun to come home after the after our trip and, and read Mark Twain's book because he went to many of the same places we went to. Yeah. Well, and I, I I think that uh, there was even there was a scene in one of the James Bond movies that originally had been filmed for it. I'm not sure if it made it into the final cut, but one when I was reading about the cemetery that they uh, uh, I think Blowfield had been buried there supposedly or something. <laughs> um, but uh, and you know and Bond goes in and and there's a, an attempted assassination of him or something. But um, but it, it's. Uh, it's it's impossible for us to convey the magnitude of it and i think even pictures can't do it justice because you you have these these incredible statues in isolation but 
part of it is is just the immensity of it yeah. and and we spent several hours there and, yeah. and i know didn't see it all by no, any means no no um so um so those interested in seeing it will will we certainly will be going back uh, to to see that again but um but of course, Catherine. Going back to Catherine briefly, she's she dates. Uh, she lived at this, around the same time as as Christopher Columbus. So she and Columbus, who of course was also from Genoa, were contemporaries there. Obviously, he he moved on for for sailing adventures. Um, but uh, but it's it's even surmised they may have known each other uh, in their younger days. Yeah, they. I mean, theoretically, it was not that big a city. They could have met each other or known each other. And in in the play I wrote, I have an imagined scene between the two of them as as that they're their childhood friends. And, uh, and yeah. so that was fun. Well, and and that's not that's not far fetched at no, all. I mean, not they, at all. They, they they very well may have and and probably would have run in those you know similar circles and so forth as you said. It what it wasn't. You know, it's. I think it, it was probably one of those um, small, big, big cities. Exactly. You know that they that where people just would have interacted. They would have known each other, and people so, would have known uh, each other. That's the thing; they would have known each other. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you have you have uh, a saint and and the uh, you know the discoverer of the new world. And of course, they have a uh, when you come into the to the train station, they have a very large statue of. Um, of Christopher Columbus, uh, that's uh, sort of dominates, uh, the, the skyline right there. But interestingly, uh, St. Catherine has a very low profile in the city. There doesn't really seem to be a lot pointing to her. Yeah. That was, I think a surprise for all of us too. We, we asked people where the church was a couple of times. They didn't know. Uh, and uh, we t- talked with other people about St. Catherine Genoa. They did not know who she was. So here's this uh, really significant saint, unknown in her own city. Mm-hmm. Just, just uh, the, the words of Christ. You know, the prophet is without honor in his own country. That's, yeah, that's right. I mean, we we visited, of course, the cathedral, and and uh, we stayed near uh, San Siro Church, and visited a number of large, magnificent churches in the city. Her church is. You know, she's the one who's a saint, uh, obviously, of course, San Siro was too, but uh, but relatively recent. 500 years ago isn't that long ago for yeah. a saint, really. Right. Um, and there's really no reference to her, no indication about her in these other larger, more magnificent churches. And her church is, I mean, it's it's a beautiful church. It's not nearly as grand as some of the others, uh, but but it's kind of out of the way. You have to know where it is. Right. It, yeah. it, and it seemed to be that it's largely at this point an immigrant church. It's, uh, the masses were in Spanish, uh, according to the, to the signs. I'm sure I think they have also have Italian masses. But, but there's a, a, a large immigrant community that really uses that, the church uh, where she is. And it, it was, it was time, run by a religious order. I think was it the Franciscans who who ran the church? Made possibly. Yeah. I, I don't remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, but anyway, so yeah. it's you know talking about cultural debris. You know, yeah. there's uh, <laughs> there's uh, you know you have you have um, I mean, one of the most significant people to ever come from Genoa to to ever 
to ever live there. And, uh, and, and certainly one of, as you pointed out, her, her writings still carry tremendous weight. Um, but there doesn't seem to be an ongoing, uh, recognition or cult of, uh, of Catherine. And it makes you wonder, uh, Alan, if one of the reasons is because we don't think about purgatory as much. Well, that, that may be, that may be. We, we just need to talk about to Bishop Barron after the Eucharistic revival is done. Maybe we need a purgatorial revival. Oh, that I, might, that might be a harder sell, but. It will be a very hard sell, <laughs> but I think it's probably what we need. I think you know, the, yeah. the medieval times, which is the, the, you know, the high middle ages is the, is the high point of Catholic civilization. Purgatory was on everybody's mind all the time, uh, and be, and that made them live better lives. It really did, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. also made them build beautiful art. I think there's a connection. Oh yeah. Oh no, no question, no question about that. Yeah. Uh, talking about saints and talking about Chesterton, uh, let's let's touch on Chesterton a little bit. There is a cause uh, for his canonization. Well, that's tell the, me about. That's, there, there isn't there, officially, well, uh, officially a cause. Okay. Yes, okay. There's a cause. There's a, but there's, yeah, so, there, there, there's a cause for the cause. How, how's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I can, I can take you through that. A lot of people don't know uh, the logistics of how a saint is uh, made. Uh, I, I yeah. certainly don't. So so uh, please enlighten me and, and everyone else. So so it's, it's not like the Catholic Church says, well, who should we make a saint uh, you know, this, this week or this month? Uh, who needs to be recognized? Uh, it's not the church doesn't uh, decide who's going to be a saint. A cult of the saints' followers makes the petition to the church, and then they open a cause for sainthood. So it always starts from the bottom up. That's the most wonderful thing about the sainthood is that it's not just a top-down thing. It is we. The church wants to know that there is a following of of a particular uh, individual, and that indeed this this person is answering prayers. Not only are people asking for his help, but he's he's granting he's granting help. So that shows that he is in the presence of God. But first, they have to establish that he had a heroic life. So the way it works is you have a cult, and that's that's, what, that's the word a cultus, a, a group who follow that saint and who bring the 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 petition to the church to a bishop and a bishop then uh, officially opens the cause that's the stage we're at right now is trying to get a bishop to open the cause and we're i i would say very very close to that happening and so i think there the cause will officially be opened uh sometime relatively soon and then that the candidate is declared a servant of god by the church they, uh, b- before the bishop opens the cause, he the Congregation for Saints in Rome uh, has to issue a nihil obstat that we have no objections to you opening the cause. And that that's the only thing that would ever kill it, uh, stop it from being opening, is is the um, the the Congregation for, for Saints saying, no, there, you, you can't do that. Uh, so a bishop can do it. Uh, and it has to be, a, it has to start with a bishop opening the cause. And then the begins the, the work of a postulator to do a full and deep and thorough uh, investigation and report on the candidate's life. 
Now, uh, who do you suppose chooses the postulator? Um, I well, would it be the bishop who opens the cause? That's what you would think, but the answer is no. <laughs> oh, okay. But you were you were required to answer that, Alan. Okay. Yeah. Then your next your next well, obviously the congregation for saints appoints the postulator. Wrong again. <laughs> so you're you've been wrong twice now, Alan. <laughs> well, that's it's not the first time or the second time. So the answer is the petitioner chooses the oh. postulator because the postulator is representing the cult, representing the the, mm. the people who, who want uh, this candidate to be uh, beatified. And so they have to really make the case. And when they have completed the case, they present it to the congregation for saints. In the old days, there was what they called the devil's advocate, Mm -hmm. But they don't. That's not an official position anymore. But still, what the Congregation for Saints does is they do a thorough examination and basically interrogation to to make sure that everything holds up uh, before the, they then declare the candidate venerable. And once they are venerable, then the next vote comes from heaven, which is the evidence of a of a miracle, and uh, through through that saint's intercession. One miracle for beatification and another miracle for canonization. Hmm. And that's how it works. Piece oh. of cake. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so looking back at, um, I guess, at, at other causes that have been initiated, what's the timeline or is there a timeline? I mean, I know, you know we can look back at, say, Pope John Paul II. Obviously, you had a situation there where you have a, a very hurried some some have argued too hurried of a process. Um, obviously, that wouldn't be the case here. What what sort of timeline uh, well, range? We, I guess. Yeah. What well, we have with Chester is assuming the cause gets open you know, within the, a year or two. The, the, there's a, a lot of work to do for the postulator because of of how prolific Chesterton was. Right. But I think uh, that just as they did with in the case of uh, St. John Henry Newman, they did a dispensation so that only his writings after his conversion needed to be evaluated. He can't, what he wrote before his conversion really doesn't enter into the, uh, into the consideration because he wasn't a Catholic then. So right. he can't, I can't hold that against him or for him really. And, uh, and so that would shorten, shorten the amount of work that has to be studied at least. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the work of the Cheshire Society is that we've gathered all these writings. We have them all available now, so they can be studied. They're all very accessible. And uh, But, you know, you'd assume it's going to be uh, probably five, six years before that that could safely be evaluated right. so that nothing turns up that's funny. And uh, and then the Congregation for Saints, it's however long they take to uh, to right. evaluate and, and to, to make a decision. Uh, we do know that there's there are sympathetic people there now. If how long they'll be there, we don't know. Uh, you know, sometimes there's a there's a uh, a popular momentum which moves things along, as it did in the case of of John Paul uh, II and Mother Teresa and and Jose uh, Maria Espiva too. Um, 
but uh, but other saints have taken five hundred years to be uh, canonized. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean Thomas More, Joan of Arc, right? Uh, but uh, it's you know God's timing. Uh, I think uh, I I want to believe it'll happen in my lifetime, obviously, and uh, it just all depends upon how long I live. <laughs> but I, I think it's it's theoretically possible that it could happen within 10 years once mm-hmm. this thing gets going. And I don't think yeah. that's out of, out of the range of possibility at all. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting with with Chesterton because, and I guess that you could argue the same with Newman, but uh, who is who is my uh, who's my uh, patron saint, confirmation saint is John Henry Newman. Um, but you have you have. Uh, Chesterton's some of Chesterton's key works that have influenced people towards conversion. He wrote prior to his own conversion. I mean, he was actually influencing. (laughs) He was influencing people towards conversion successfully before he himself had converted. Yep. (laughs) Which is which is really an incredible thing. Uh, Yep. So. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, a prime example is uh, Monsignor Knox, who uh, right, mm-hmm. Ronald Knox, because of reading Orthodoxy, that really made him move towards the Catholic Church. And then when Chesterton himself was ready to be uh, instructed, he, you know, Monsignor Knox is one of the people he talked to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I've been reading uh, Joseph Pierce's Literary Converts. Uh, on on my bedside table at this moment, and uh, I would you know of course he he talks about just that and and others who who Chesterton influenced and obviously uh, that the influence from those earlier works have continued. Yep. Orthodoxy was one of the one of the first Chesterton books I read t- over twenty years ago. I guess it took a while for it to sink in, but <laughs> well, he he you have to read that book several times. I think I don't. I don't think one reading is ever going to do it for anybody. Yeah. 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 But and it's, uh, it's well, not that difficult to book. You just have, you just have to keep reading it because there's so much there. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, an exciting prospect, uh, a, a lo- again, a long way from, uh, from walking into that room in 1990. So you've, uh, you have, you have shepherded, uh, his cause, lowercase C cause. Well, all these decades. So, uh, I guess guess there there are a couple more steps to go. So I don't keep that's something to keep you busy. I I hope to keep busy. You know I don't I don't I don't like uh, just falling falling into complete sheer boredom. But um, I will say that uh, becoming friends with Chester and having him walk beside me has has been one of the great uh, the great pleasures of my life. And and you know the reason I believe he's a saint is because saints saints are your friends. They they show that they are advocating for you. And and that's what Chesterton has done for me. Well, I, I have my own little personal litany of um, kind of literary figures that, uh, that I will appeal to in prayer from time to time. And, and uh, Chesterton is, is in my little personal litany. So, so he does hear from me uh, probably not as often as he should, but, uh, <laughs> but he does. Oh, great. So. That's good. Well, uh, if folks want to, they can they can see both you and me uh, and other people like like this Bishop Barron guy uh, 
in Minneapolis this summer at the end of, uh, was it July 27th? July 27th through 29th in yeah. Minneapolis and go to chesterton.org and register and there's still some space, but we will run out of space. So please uh, start making the move as soon as you can. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and we'll, we will see those folks and hang out with them and, and afterglow with them. And there may be free beverages of some sort. You never know. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> you think, you think, you think that's, that's safe. Yeah. Well, Dale, thank you very much for being on. And uh, it's good to see you again after our time in Genoa. Uh, it's not a lot of people I, I hung out with for a week overseas. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Perhaps you can join us again sometime. But I look forward to seeing you in uh, Minnesota. Likewise, Alan. And thanks for having me on your uh, Culture Brief podcast today. All right. I'll see you at the Chesterton Conference. Great. God bless.